Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. So welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast. Uh, my name is Daryl Mathers, and I'm with my co-host, Chris Bovey. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hey, Daryl. Good to see you virtually. Yes. <laughs> so as uh, this is our third or fourth COVID-19 podcast, the ones we've been doing from our uh, remotely. And before we kind of get into today's special guest, which uh, I think Chris and I are both pretty excited about, um, we want to give a shout out to our staff at Ontario Shores, uh, who are providing mental health care throughout the pandemic and healthcare workers everywhere. This is a very uh, challenging time uh, for everybody. And uh, while, you know, we kind of settle into this new normal, uh, we want everybody to know how appreciative we are of everything they're doing and, uh, to keep our patients safe in our community. So thank you to everybody out there. So on to our guest today, which I, I'm personally very excited about. I'm even wearing one of his little <laughs> teams on my chest. Um, Kelly Rudy, who I was saying to Chris earlier, and this is not to make you feel old, Kelly, but I don't remember the NHL without Kelly Rudy. You were, <laughs> you know, you were, you were a player. When I started, you know, watching hockey as a, as a young person, you were in the NHL, and then you transitioned right from the NHL to broadcaster. You've been uh, a part of my NHL experience uh, my whole life, so it's an honor to have you here. So officially welcome Kelly Rudy, ex-NHL goaltender and current broadcaster on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. Cool. Well, thanks for inviting me on your show, Daryl and uh, Chris. I'm looking forward to it, and I think uh, you guys and most people that sort of follow me away from uh, the hockey environment know that uh, uh, my family were heavily involved in mental health issues, and we've talked uh, openly about our daughter, Caitlin, and uh, I've come out recently talking about some of the things that uh, I've gone through. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I think now... Uh, at my age, I, I fully recognize what I was going through in uh, LA, and so very open about uh, talking about uh, these issues. Well, there's no shortage of issues today uh, with what the world is going through. How are you and your family doing through all of this? <clears throat> I think that we uh, would be very similar to everybody else uh, around the world, and not just Canadians, but all of us that are going through through this and the stress of the pandemic and uh, not only uh, uh, are we going to be uh, healthy physically but mentally I think uh, it, the strain uh, was really getting to a lot of my family members my wife I know uh, ended up stressing herself out so much it ended up uh, getting uh, shingles uh, all three of our daughters uh, have had uh, issues in terms of uh, you know how is it going to look on the other side Financially, it's different for everybody and so on. So what I've said to most people is that uh, going through this, um, listen to uh, your thoughts because they're real and uh, don't try and just push them down and, and not share them, uh, whether uh, you have to share it with a, a family member or a friend and or uh, if you're a friend or a family member, look out for others and notice, try and notice the signs because you can notice the stress on somebody. And uh, I think that it's very important to, and I should have done that that Sunday when I knew my wife was uh, 
really getting uh, worked up about the pandemic and and I should have been more intuitive and, and asked her, hey, honey, you okay? It seems like uh, you're really preoccupied with the pandemic. Like that Sunday in particular, uh, she was flipping channels like crazy, all about the news of the uh, pandemic. And, and we were, I think all of us that day were starting to recognize the severity of this. And uh, it just beat her up and then the next morning i think she said she woke up at 5 15 in the morning with great chest pain and so on and thought that she was having a heart attack so we ended up taking her to the hospital and you know she checked out just fine her heart was okay but ended up like i said getting shingles but for other people too there's uh you know i think all of us should be very empathetic and sympathetic towards people that are going through this because it is very stressful for everyone yeah and i think we can't really escape it right now, right? It's social media, it's on TV. It's just, even my kids are watching it all the time and having questions about uh, the pandemic. But I saw it was interesting. I thought it was really great that you do, um, on a bit of a podcast, you do your video testimonials. And you yeah. said, I, I actually skipped a week because I wasn't feeling it. And, and empowering people mm -hmm. to say, it's okay to not be okay. Right. To take a bit of a break, because we're so used to always saying to people, how do you feel great when we don't feel great? It's okay to share when we're struggling. Absolutely. And, and that is, I, I, I took a week off and uh, I just couldn't do it. I wasn't up to it. And I wore that t-shirt that you mentioned that it's okay not to be okay. And, and uh, I had a lot of great reaction from that one. And uh, I think that's the important thing that uh, we sort of look after uh, ourselves too. I've always said this or not always. I most recently, I've really come to the conclusion I don't know, about three, four, five years ago, be kind to ourselves. Like I'm, I'm terrible at beating myself up. Like I'm really good at it. And there's no reason for that. You know, after, if I think I have a bad broadcast, whether it's on uh, uh, hockey night broadcast or uh, Sportsnet flames broadcast. And, and if I'm not what I think the level I should be, man, I'm good at beating myself up. Like if I'm here in Calgary and I'm driving home after the game, I'm worried about, uh, you know, why was I that bad? Were, were you not prepared or, you know, I just, you know, ridiculous, right? So I think coming through this, I'm going to try and be better at that for myself and, you know, just put a bad performance behind me and, and uh, live with it and accept it. Right. I want to talk a little bit about, you had mentioned earlier about your daughter, Caitlin. And so from a parent's perspective, um, we know now she was dealing with OCD and anxiety disorder. Yeah. Early on when she was younger, what were some of the signs and what, you know, as a parent, what were you going through when you started starting seeing these behaviors that you didn't quite understand? And how did you process that? Well, the first one, Chris, and I don't know if you can see it on my camera, but I'm going to get close to my uh, camera. And this is what she's doing all day long blinking her eyes and what we were to find out later is that she uh, thought that she was going blind. Well, first of all, I should explain for uh, the viewers that Caitlin with her uh, anxiety and OCD, she has uh, two thoughts that she wakes up with every day and it's uh, concerning uh, dying and diseases. So her brain was going around. She taught us this uh, years later about the loop. that just goes round and round and round. And she had no tools to break the loop until years later when we uh, were able to, after years of help, uh, finally get her, uh, as she, these are her words, not uh, ours. She's, after four years, started to have more good days than bad. So, But going back to those times when she was about 11 years old, um, she had what I called at the time quirky little habits. Now, um, so it was the blinking, and then these other things that started to present themselves. 
Um, uh, she, it was harder for her to go to school. She didn't like to go to dance. She was blowing off sleepovers, didn't like to be around her friends as often, uh, loss of appetite. In fact, uh, at one point, Don and I counted up, this is years later, counted up how many uh, signs uh, she had, and I think uh, we counted something like 13. Now, back in 2013, when she went public with her story, we partnered with RBC, and they had a campaign called Know the Signs. I think they had uh, identified five, so you can tell if Caitlin had 13 and not just five, she was she was uh, in a really bad place. So. When she was 12 years old, that's when her life became completely unmanageable. So it was completely debilitating. She couldn't go to school, couldn't go to dance, couldn't do anything, couldn't leave the house, basically wanted to be around uh, her mom all day long. Uh, and so that first day of school in 2005, that's when uh, Donna was driving her. I wasn't in the car that day, but they came home immediately and Donna said something, if only you could have seen the sheer uh, fear in her eyes. So that day, um, we were able to find a psychologist. Luckily, um, they were able to get her in the next day. So when Donna called originally, and I know a lot of Canadians have this problem, when Donna called, they said, yeah, I think we have an opening in three or four months. And so that's not right. So uh, they were able to get her in the next day because there was a cancellation. It's not like we jumped the queue or anything. Um, and so that was the start of that uh, process. And we were so lucky that uh, she had a connection with her doctor, uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Kelly Mraz here in Calgary, and he's uh, he changed her life. Um, but uh, it was a long road. It still can be a long road. Like it, those uh, things surface uh, every once in a while, and sometimes they're – somewhat more manageable and other times they're debilitating again. So we recognize that. During that process, Kelly, I mean, it must be, I, mean, I don't know if it's even harder as an athlete because you're so used to, I have a challenge. I know I want to problem solve it, fix it right away. And for you as a parent, um, the things she was saying in your mind would say, well, you're not going blind, but it's so real to them. How hard was it for you to sort of process what she was feeling and, and sort of how you would approach a problem and fix something. Yeah. Well, I think that it was, it was different for me to uh, see what Caitlin was going through. So I think my wife and I, Donna, we we're very um, understanding. And I don't know if this is right. We're accepting of what she was going through. So it wasn't, we weren't trying to fill her head with uh, get over it or tough love or, you know, none, none of that. It was all from a very, uh, understanding uh, place so we we did recognize when we like I said that first uh, day of school in in 2005 we recognized at that point that there was something really serious going on and that this wasn't one of those things where uh, at times we all do have to just power through things but that she was not in a place to do that Chris right yep I think I saw an article or a comment that uh, when you're doing some of your advocacy work just how you know you maybe before you thought you had an idea of what mental health was or mental illness or you know maybe not specifically anxiety or OCD mm -hmm. but then when you saw your daughter struggle with it you realized that you really didn't have much of an idea of what those illnesses meant um so I, I'm wondering like what type of education process has it been you know for you and your family to to learn more about what your daughter was going through Oh wow, what a uh, what a journey! Well, we've been on and learning personally about uh, the effects of mental health. Um, 
it was eye-opening for me. I, I mean, I had little to no knowledge of what uh, people were going through. And uh, now looking back for sure um, at some of my teammates, uh, there were guys going through things, mm -hmm. definitely. And I had no idea. I had no idea to ask them a question if they're okay. I didn't know what they were going through. I wouldn't have known uh, the magnitude of their uh, troubles. So um, it's been, in a, in a sense, I hope people take this the right way. It's kind of been a cool journey as well to learn about it. And uh, I'm very grateful that I've had the chance to uh, learn about, you know, humans and what we're all going through. Because by the way, I, I say this often when I go public speaking about this, uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association will tell you that one in five uh, suffer. Well, uh, and, and I, I, I suppose that's correct if you say that where it's maybe debilitating, where they can't leave their house or their, you know, that, that greatly affect. But I think it's like four and five or five and five, because I think we all have something. What, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's perfectly manageable to a degree, but I know that uh, just looking around and talking to people, like people come up to us every single day, whether it's in the coffee shop, well, I guess that's not now, but <laughs> in a regular world, and, uh, and or I get text messages or how Chris reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and just talking about it. And it's, it's really heartwarming. And Kelly, do you, looking back and sort of at your career and, when, and you did your book, going through your journey with your daughter, was that kind of a, an awakening? Did you sort of look and say, see symptoms and start to look at your own life and career? Is that kind of how you kind of learned? I was going through something back then. It was an education process just for you to go back in your own life. Uh, that did happen, but it wasn't immediate, Chris. So what happened was when Caitlin start, started to get to a better place, and then we were really learning as a family. And, and that's the other thing. We, we shared everything with her two sisters. So, knowing, uh, so they knew what was going on and that to – uh, the things that Kate was learning and so on. And so once we got to a better place and we do use humor in our family uh, when it's appropriate about mental health and so on. And I'll tell you a story in a minute, but uh, then they, the kids started to tease me about my uh, OCD. I've never been uh, clinically diagnosed, but clearly I have it. And so some of my things, which I thought were just habits, for instance, if I go to a hotel room and I'm in hotel rooms a lot, and if I'm going to stay there more than one night, I have to get the little washcloth and set it up by the sink. And then I put my uh, toiletries all on the washcloth, all in a particular order. And now it doesn't drive me crazy if I can't do it or if the order's messed up a little bit, but it is pretty important to me that I have that washcloth and then the toiletries set out there. So we kind of joked about that. But when I, when I talked about uh, the humor, uh, after Caitlin was getting really good and really doing well, uh, we might be somewhere and I'd say something like, okay, so what do you have today? And she'd say, well, today I have a brain tumor. She have a, a different kind of cancer. Or I have this or, have, uh, you know, so it became kind of like a, a running joke. And, but she had the tools, of course, to uh, stop that loop and, and rationalize her thoughts. And so that's what, uh, it's so cool to see how somebody can be in that position at one point and then, uh, after a while, um, then they're in a good uh, place mentally. All goalies seem to have superstition, so maybe that's a little OCD. <laughs> did you have anything that you did before games or any little? I did early on, and then I think it was in my second year, guys, that uh, we were having a game in Washington, 
and uh, I put up my I used to put my sticks all in a particular order away from everybody else's my, my sticks that were ready for the game and I usually have three or four for every game and uh, the young stick boy came into the dressing room he might have been 14 or 15 and he grabbed my sticks and then put them over by where everybody else's uh, sticks were by the on the stick rack and I, I guess I must have snapped at him because Denny Potvin was sitting close to me. He goes, Kelly, something like, knock it off. You know, you've got to get over that because uh, it doesn't matter where your sticks are in the dressing. It doesn't matter if they're against that wall and you put them there or if the young lad put them over there. You have to make sure that you don't think that that's going to or affect the outcome of the game. And it was a great lesson. So I basically let all my superstitions go, but – yeah, but uh, going back to the last comment about uh, when I did learn about what I was going through and so on, yeah, that's when I finally identified that uh, in particular in my book I talk about an episode I was having in uh, Milwaukee. We had a neutral site game there, and uh, the thoughts had been with me for months about I couldn't uh, – could I still play at this level and can I keep it up? And I'd been in the league, I guess, about 10 years, and I knew the league average was about three and a half years, and – just those thoughts were consuming and uh, I just couldn't break that loop in my head. And then that's when it really started to go south for me. What, uh, I wonder about your daughter now, just to circle back. Um, how's your daughter doing now? And can you explain kind of the pride that you've had in watching her yeah. through this journey? <laughs> Well, first of all, she's under some stress right now um, because uh, she was supposed to get married this uh, summer, this fall. And uh, we have uh, on top of the wedding and first of all, we've made a decision she's going to get married or, or she's made the decision she still wants to get married. She doesn't want to postpone it. She's had a lovely fiance, uh, Hayden, and they've made the choice that even if we can't all gather uh, as expected or hoped, um, they're going to have uh, a wedding here, most likely in our backyard. In fact, she's in our house right now with my wife going over some plans. So hoping, hoping that that can ease the stress level for her. Uh, but yeah, in terms of uh, the pride, of course, and I've told her uh, many, many times, I think she might be the strongest person I've ever uh, met. And just to go from where she was when uh, the summer of 2005 and, and before that, to where she is today. And she's had some uh, setbacks, definitely. Like most people with mental health issues, you can have some setbacks, but there's no shame in that and shouldn't be embarrassed with that. That's just part of the, uh, the nature of mental health. And so uh, she's been able to overcome those setbacks and uh, just so proud of her. And uh, I think one of the things that make it, it makes it so much uh, better or, or more influential is that because she shared her story, it's cool how so many people know about her journey and what she's gone through and the strength and, and uh, letting other people know it's okay. Yeah. I, Kelly, how was that? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just, the, just to follow up on that, Kelly, because I know Chris and I, you know, working in the mental health field and trying, you know, yeah. part of our role is to try and reduce the stigma associated with mental health so people reach out for help. I know when we heard your story, we're like, Kelly Rudy's a mental health advocate. You know, like it's, you know, it's all, you know, you celebrate when, when people come forward, and, you know, that have some sort of notoriety or influence. Uh, and, you, you know, because you want so badly, you know, for mental health to get the, to get the place in society that it deserves, right? To be on the same par as, as all sorts of other critical illnesses. 
when you and your family made the decision to come forward, and I mean, you have experience dealing with notoriety, but did the wave of uh, appreciation or enthusiasm, did that surprise you guys at all? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I only hesitate because uh, I was very concerned. So Caitlin came out publicly in, I want to say, April of 2013 uh, in a really big way. There's an article in the National Post, and in fact, I think it was the front cover. Joe O'Connor of the National Post did a beautiful article on, on her. Uh, and then uh, 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 the Canadian press, I'm trying to think of her name, Delarose. Uh, Man, I'm so embarrassed, I can't remember her name. She, she also wrote a beautiful article and captured Caitlin's uh, spirit a little bit differently. But the night before uh, we were going to go public with it, I had a great conversation with Caitlin. I was in St. Louis for a playoff game, and she is here in Calgary. And I called her and said, let's just have a chat here. Make sure we want to do this. Because what I was afraid of, social media was getting, uh, gaining speed at that point. And I was afraid of the haters or the people that might bash her on social media. So we had a great conversation about that. And much to my surprise, she didn't have one per person uh, bash her or said hate or anything. And so that was amazing. That was cool. And so uh, that's why we speak often about that. If you are um, troubled, if you're hurting, if you're if you need help, don't be ashamed. You're not going to, nobody's going to shame you or embarrass you. Um, it's a, it's a sign of strength in today's world. And I think that's really, really great. And, uh, so, and in fact, here's another message that we have about this. Uh, you do not have to share if you don't want to though. Uh, that's, that's not the prerequisite that if you're going through something that all of a sudden you have to uh, share your story. Some people can't. We have another person that we love dearly and, and they're going through things and, and they're getting quite a bit better, but they're not comfortable sharing and that's fine. Uh, it's, there's no mandate that you have to go out and, and, uh, and share what you're going through because it's, it's also personal. True. Uh, speaking of young people, one of the things you did, um, you did some work with Bob Wilkie and I did a tour of, of uh, across Canada speaking to young hockey players, athletes. Um, anything surprise you when you did that when you're speaking to young people about, about anxiety and mental health issues? Okay, I love that you know about Bob Wilkie. In fact, uh, I was just texting before I came on with you guys. We're chatting about another project he has coming up in June. But uh, for the people watching this that don't know about Bob Wilkie, you should Google him. So he, like myself, is a second rounder uh, back in the day. And uh, he had uh, his, his childhood was different than mine, though. I had a really... Uh, 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 wonderful upbringing and I didn't go through trauma. Uh, Bob went through a lot of trauma as a youngster and he shares the stories and, and so on. And then on top of that trauma that he had, he had a, a, a really terrible situation when he was playing in Swift Currents as a junior hockey player. And uh, tragically he was on the bus in which uh, four players lost their, their lives in that uh, accident, very much like the Humboldt uh, bus crash. And so um, he had to deal with that, of which he did not get any help. And he, so he, he carried that burden with him for a long, long time. And it led to some uh, addiction issues and so on. Anyways, why that's important is because he's doing so well now. And he's uh, such a mental health advocate, doing incredibly well. He has that I Got Mine program. But I, I knew Bob 
and but I didn't know him well. And he wrote a book. And uh, so I, my wife and I went to the uh, book reading, I think it was in 2012, started to learn more about Bob. And then he invited me to be a part of his I Got Mine program. Uh, and But before I accepted that, I wanted to go see him working with the kids' teams and how he interacted with the kids in the dressing room. And it was really, really cool. It was uh, uh, you know, very informative. It was uh, trans transformative as well because people weren't talking to uh, others like this. And so here's my point at the very end. This was so cool. Working with like 14, 15-year-old kids. And after the se session was uh, done and uh, they're about to say their goodbyes and something, he'd say something like this. Uh, so, Chris, you're first. Uh, what would you like to say to Garnet or whatever? And Chris would stand up and go, hey, Garnet, I love you. And then... <laughs> right? Young hockey players telling each other that they love each other is so cool. So at that point, I was on board. Great. <clears throat> were, you, were you surprised going around? Did we, there were kids sharing their own personal stories as well? Uh, starting to, yeah. yeah. And, and that's why now I'm uh, more involved, although I, I, I have to admit, uh, when Bob asked me three years ago, three summers ago, to get on board with these tours and so on, uh, I accepted heartily. Um, but uh, what I quickly recognized is that I'm just too busy to really uh, do it as often as I had hoped. And so uh, we do some of this, the podcasts and w webinars and so on, uh, because just with my busy travel, I, I was trying to do things with him, not only in Calgary, but in other uh, communities. And I tried and it just became too much for me. But uh, I'm still a part of the program and I do it uh, in different ways. But, uh, oh my gosh, he, uh, it's so cool to hear young kids now coming on uh, in these sessions or when we go out to, to schools or things and, and they share their story fully and there, there's no shame. And it's really cool. You know, uh, it's, it's emotional for everybody, but that's okay. It's, it is uh, fascinating, the shift in hockey culture, which is part of what you're talking about, right? Like, yeah. Uh, I've been in locker rooms, you know, most of my life and, it it's amazing just you know at the level the low level that you know that i've played um just the words that are no longer acceptable in a locker room setting in a team environment the coaches use like the whole language has shifted and the understanding uh that you know uh, people in leadership positions have for you know various issues mental health being one has it happened like how have you, how would you describe, I guess, that transition, you know, maybe from a mental health standpoint and how that culture is shifting? Is it quickly enough? Is it faster than you thought? Uh, you know, where, where do you think it's at? Um, I think it's both. I think uh, it's shifting. Um, and maybe at times I think it's quicker than I expected. And other times uh, there are still some things that, that just really puzzle me. And now some people are still left behind and, and they don't understand the, the new world and how you have to treat people and what you say and, and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. It seems like every week or two we're, we're shocked and surprised by what some people say and that's hard to, to understand. But then here's a, another heartwarming one. So I'm driving around today uh, running some errands um, 
and doing it properly. So everybody knows social distancing and all that kind of stuff. So we're very safe. In fact, it, uh, it's very difficult for my wife and I because uh, we love our, our three daughters and, and we're grandparents and we can't see our young grandson very often, uh, if at all right now. And we're trying to be really cool about it, make sure we're doing the right thing. But anyways, so I'm driving around and I'm listening to Hockey Central at noon with Jeff Merrick, Justin Bourne and Brian Burke. And they have Paul Bissonette on. And uh, most hockey fans know who Paul is. And he has that uh, Split and Chicklets uh, podcast with Ryan Whitney. And, and they're going to sign off. And uh, Paul says to the three hosts, he goes, okay, love you guys. Like, how great is that, right? We're, we're actually in the hockey world saying I love you at the end of an uh, interview. So it's really cool. To Brian Burke. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> we had him on the podcast. Yeah, a little while ago. He, he oh, was, did you? He's intimidating. Well, I don't know. He's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a very uh, interesting guy. He's a, I'll, I'll, I'll share a little story about Brian. And, and uh, uh, Paul Bissnett. Oh, uh, said something very similar today, but uh, it was a number of years ago when Brian was still managing in Vancouver. And at that point, he was even more gruff than uh, he comes across today. And uh, But I, I was starting to learn. I was going out to Vancouver quite a bit to do Canucks games on Saturdays, and I was starting to learn quite a bit about Brian that uh, most people didn't know or understand. So one time there was a tragic story. There was a young player that he was about my age, so not a young player, but uh, by the name of Gary Lupel. And Gary was a talented uh, player. Um, I played against him in junior uh, when he played for Victoria. Man, I, I just love that guy's uh, passion for the game and so on. Anyways, he, he after his playing career was done, he ran into some problems and got uh, he had some addiction issues and so on, mental health. And, and uh, Brian and the uh, Canucks alumni went to great lengths to help Gary out and get him back on track and get him sober and so on. And once he started to do well, um, then they gave him a job with the Canucks. And he was a, a video scout, I believe, and they had the Canucks scouting staff really helping him and and making sure he is on track and making progress. And then he could start to go on the road and he was doing really, really well. And unfortunately, one day when he was 40 years old, he was visiting his dad in Powell River, BC in the summer, sitting in his favorite chair and he has a heart attack and dies. And so uh, Brian and the, I told that story on air one night and how Brian was a big part of getting uh, Gary healthy again. And, uh, and I said, so you people out there, and I think yeah, I've been pointed at the camera. I said, you people out there that think Brian is just this big, tough, burly, gruff guy, you know, there's a side of him and he doesn't want people to know, but he's really soft inside. And, uh, and I didn't hear anything from Brian. And then I flew home Sunday, didn't hear anything from him. Then on Monday I get a call and, uh, I go, Hey Brian, how you doing? He goes, don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever tell people I've got a warm heart because I've worked hard at crafting this uh, image that I'm a, a big gruff guy and I don't want to ruin that. So we had a good chuckle over that and then we became pretty good friends. We went fishing a few times up in uh, Haida Gwaii in northern British Columbia. And so I've, I've definitely seen a different side of him. There were, um, in hockey, when we, we, there were a number of players that, that had tragic suicides and yeah. At the time, I wonder if it changed. So I was kind of unhappy at the time when media were talking about it because everybody wanted to go to concussions. And I felt like any time a player had a mental health issue, 
it couldn't be just because they're a human being. It had to be related to some kind of head trauma, which in some cases there could be a connection, but it almost did a disservice to hockey players that, well, they can't have depression or anxiety like the rest of the public. Do you think that is starting to change for, for athletes? I, I totally agree with you, Chris, and I hope so, because you were right. There, there for a stretch there when uh, people were uh, tragically losing their lives, the, they were focused on one issue and not looking at the entire picture. And uh, uh, I'm not going to get into specifics, but uh, some of the people that we're talking about uh, had mental health issues, and that wasn't uh, talked about enough as it, uh, as it should have been, for sure. Speaking of the like the bigger picture, can't talk to call it Kelly Rudy without talking hockey specifically about your <laughs> career, and we'll get to today a little bit. But this was kind of going through getting ready for today, and like like I said, you you know your career has pretty much spanned my my time watching hockey, and uh, I think back to when you broke in with uh, into the league. You're you broken with the Islanders. You're coming off four Stanley Cups, and I always remember that time as like. You know, even though you guys went to the final, your first your first year, fifth yeah. time in a row going to the final, that it was kind of like the Islanders' swan song. That you know, obviously the Oilers were coming up, and you guys were kind of like old and and uh, beaten down, if you will. Yeah. And then I started going through the roster again. I'm like, like Mike Bossy was 26 when you lost that cup uh, to the Oilers. Yeah. Uh, like, I think Dennis Potvin was 29. Like all these, all you guys were in your twenties, and you had you coming up, and you had Pat Lafontaine who was an eighteen-year-old yeah. kid on that team. Like, yeah. and I start going through the years. It's like you guys should have, should have won more. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, we it's a tough league, and uh, but I think that uh, for those guys that have won the four Stanley Cups, as you mentioned, I made made that team the following year. Uh, there was a lot of wear and tear in the bodies, and and you know what. What really struck me not long ago is that when I, I went through that roster again, and I wanted to see how young those guys were that when they retired. Like Mike Bossy, although he had back issues, he retired, I believe, at 29 or 30 or something. Uh, Dennis Potvin retired at 32 or something. Uh, Brian Trache, he played a little bit longer. A lot of those guys were retiring uh, late 20s or early 30s. Like in today's game, you're – Lots of players are playing well into their 30s. Like, I even played until I was 37 years old. And if I would have been 32, I'm not thinking about retiring. And so it was a different mindset back then. Uh, but uh, those guys have a lot of wear and tear on their bodies. There's no question about it. The Oilers were a great team. Uh, we were in transition, as you mentioned. Pat LaFontaine made, uh, or joined us after the Olympics, as did uh, Flatley that year. We called up Gordonine and... So on, but uh, man alive, was I ever intimidated going in that dressing room my first time, especially. I was drafted in 1980 uh, after uh, their first cup victory over Philadelphia. And back then, most often, unless you're a, a first rounder, you weren't invited to training camp. But for some reason, I was invited to uh, camp on Long Island. And I didn't have any expectations, right? I, was, I knew I was going back to junior, but... Much to my surprise, um, the very first preseason game was in Chicago, and uh, I was going to play. I had no expectation of playing a preseason game back in 1980, but the what a couple of stories really stand out to me. And uh, so we're on a it was commercial flights, of course, back then, and uh, I'm on a plane in a middle seat 
and Brian Trotch is right here and Mike Bossy's right here because they were best of friends. And I, I don't think it's a secret that management put, it, put me in between those two guys just to watch and learn. And I did that. Uh, and then we get to Chicago, play. I played two periods, let in five goals, I think on 36 shots. At the other end was uh, Tony Esposito. So I, I couldn't believe it. Also, I'm playing against Tony Esposito. And then after the game, uh, the guys, virtually the whole team, took me out for a beer and pizza at a deep dish pizza joint in downtown Chicago. They didn't let me pay for a thing. And uh, I've never forgotten how, how nice those guys were to me, a, a young 19-year-old rookie, and it was just so cool. I remember the NHL before you played, if that makes you feel any better. So I'm not allowed to go. Um, but it's funny, I was thinking about you on the broadcast, and I've always watched you and I love what you bring to the, to the broadcast. And you always come across as sort of a very thoughtful, uh, gentle sort of nature to a broadcast as well. But, but then cool. I remember you in your career, and I don't remember that side of it. You, I, I remember a more intense player. But, was there a real difference between – am I right? Comparing oh, you're right. <laughs> you're so right. I uh, I played with uh, – and I don't mind sharing this. Uh, I played with full hatred in my heart. I <laughs> I hated the opposition, and I was feisty as can be. Like, uh, I think some people uh, thought that when I went to the Islanders, uh, I sort of inherited that trait from Billy Smith. No, uh, I had that going way back in my childhood. Like, I played – I was a fierce competitor – uh, at times too fierce. I I found out later how I was a, a couple of despicable things I did in junior that I'm I'm not proud of. But uh, no, I, I played I think the right way for the most part because I came to play. I, I didn't like the other guys, and there were no I wasn't cutting deals on the ice. And uh, hey, you know I've known you from since we grew up, and uh, yeah, if you score on me, I don't mind as much as other guys. None of that in my mind. I. I could, and even though my friends I had, or if I played junior hockey with you, uh, I could hate you pretty easily on the ice. And, and 10 minutes later, when I see you in the hall, we're all good. <laughs> I play the same way. Unfortunately, it doesn't sit well in, in beer league men's hockey. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. Uh, the most memorable moment for me with you in an Islander uniform is Easter, Epic, oh, yeah. Washington, you know, and Pat LaFontaine scoring the winner. Um, my God. And it's like, you think about back then, uh, I imagine you had like one trainer. I imagine you're not eating, you're not drinking Gatorade between periods. Right. Like what was, what was that? Like that, I think it was four overtime periods, right? It was yeah. like two o'clock in the morning before the game yeah. was ended. Like, how did you get through that? Okay. Well, I'll go back a few days. So we ended up falling behind three, one in that series. And so we were able to fight back and tie the series up on Long Island, but we're going to Washington for game seven. Uh, and we're without Dennis Potvin, Brian Trotche, or uh, uh, Dennis Potvin, Mike Bossy, and Brent Sutter, three of our best players, not in the lineup because they're injured. And Brian Trotche is playing with a separated left shoulder. So the odds were in Washington's favor, but I'll tell you what, we had a lot of fight in our game. And uh, that was just a phenomenal experience to go through. But you're so right, Daryl, that, you know, what we had in terms of nutrition going into the game, how we hydrated before the game, um, just it, it's nowhere near how scientific it is now. Uh, I don't recall ever having like power bars in, in the intermissions or anything, and uh, we didn't have pizza, nothing coming to, 
to sort of get some uh, energy. I recall after the game, like you said, it, it finished at four minutes to two in the morning. It started at 730. Uh, after the, the celebration, the handshakes, and I, I recall doing some interviews after, and then I get into the dressing room, and I start taking my gear off, and I finally get my pads off, start to undo my skate laces, take my skates off, and I was so dehydrated that immediately my toes curled under. That's how uh, I was dehydrated. So what did I do right then to hydrate? <laughs> I had two cold beers. <laughs> uh, that sounds I don't think. Well, they don't even have beer dressings anymore. But <laughs> back then, that was a that was a thing. And so uh, I had the cold beers, and I I can tell you what they went right to my head. <laughs> uh, I can I can only imagine. <laughs> the uh, after the like you're kind of. Your two for your first two teams in the NHL, kind of really interesting environments to go into, right? You're, yeah. you're with the Islanders, you know, this legendary team, four cups. Um, you know, Mike Bossy, one of the shortest, greatest careers ever. And things were starting to change on the island. Yeah. You get traded to LA right at the, I guess, at the end of Gretzky's first year in LA when yeah. the whole league changed. Um, yeah. What, like, what was that experience like? Actually, I'll back it up. What was it like going to LA and you know for a road trip in 1987-88, and then what was it like going or going into LA as a visiting player and as a king, you know, in, in the post Gretzky era? So when I made the Islanders, uh, I thought that uh, that was be like the most celebrated team around, having guys like all the guys that we just talked about, and I thought I knew to a certain degree celebrity, and I did, but when I finally uh, met and played on the 87 Canada uh, Cup team and met Wayne Gretzky. That changed my perspective and everything. I had no idea how popular he was. I knew he was the best player in the game. I knew of all the records. I played against him for years. But to be around him personally and see the media attention that he was getting and the attention from the fans and so on, that was eye-opening. I had no idea the life that he was living. And, uh, and then when I was traded to L.A. in February of 89, uh, thanks to Wayne, in fact, because uh, we formed some sort of relationship and he thought uh, uh, that I might help the Kings, um, then, then it's a different transformation sort of because, okay, so I did know his popularity, uh, but now when you're traveling on a team with Wayne and you're going to all these other uh, places to play, this was kind of cool to learn and to understand the human brain and psychology because here's the world's most popular player, the best player, all eyes are on him. So if we're going to say a, a place where maybe not normally, they normally probably wouldn't sell out, it's a sellout because it's Wayne Gretzky, right? So it put added pressure on all of us. And that was a good thing because we couldn't let our buddy down, right? So uh, in a building that might have 12,000 people normally, now they have 19. And it's simply because of one person, and that's Wayne. And so how dare we go out there and, you know, maybe not be as into it as we needed to be. Or, you know, you're, you're talking to your wife and your kids are sick and you're a little preoccupied. You, you have to put all that aside. It was very important that we played well so that uh, uh, Wayne looked good. Um, you know, the other thing is that clearly stands out to me. When I was uh, traded to L.A., I believe in around Southern California, um, 
they only had three hockey rinks. There's the Great Western Forum where we played. San Diego had a uh, had hockey history, and they had an arena. And uh, there was a place called the Culver City Ice Rink, about 15 minutes away from our home rink in Inglewood. Now, I, I've done some research about four or five years ago. There's something like 70 or 80 uh, separate uh, hockey facilities, some with multiple ice sheets. And so the game has grown so much, and I owe that to, to two people, uh, Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall. Bruce had the foresight to recognize that uh, the great game of hockey uh, could be popular in Los Angeles and Southern California or Northern California now. But uh, it needed the right person, and that was Wayne, because uh, all of a sudden hockey became popular. It was cool to watch the growth, and that's why I think a lot of us that played in the 80s and 90s in L.A., we were so happy when the Kings won the Cup in 2012 because it was like all this hard work from so many people, and it's now paying off. And uh, I, I'm proud to say also that uh, uh, you know California is now considered a hockey hotbed. Like a lot of the junior teams in uh, especially Western Canada have kids playing from uh, California. And yet when I went there in 89, if you told me that, I would have said, no, not a chance. It's not going to be a hockey hotbed. Maybe it's going to become a little popular uh, in California. But, but that's so cool to talk about. That, the amount so, of like first rounders and yeah, yeah right. Of, and one of the I think one of the key indicators of how hockey's grown in the states is the amount of guys who play on third and fourth line roles who are from places like California, Texas. Mm -hmm. like, yes, there, there are a lot of guys like they're not just superstars. Like they're developing, you know, like grinders and six defensemen. Like there's some depth there. You're right, and I'm glad you brought up Texas because that's so true. And uh, I think the next wave might be from Tennessee because the the success that Nashville's had. I I was told that they play a lot of high school hockey there, um, and their system's a little bit different. But I do. I was told when Nashville first uh, started there, uh, they had no high school hockey, none whatsoever. Now there's tons of teams, and it's a real thriving program. So that's really cool as well. Daryl just brought up Texas because I was a North Stars fan. He just wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to rub that in a little bit. Um, I'm just curious now, obviously we're all hoping hockey comes back sooner than later. Yeah. How are you um, with, your, with Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada? Are you having regular meetings? Are you on standby? or uh, what's, what's life like for you getting ready for uh, maybe a, a last right. break? Well, it's a little bit different for me here in Calgary because I kind of separate a little bit and I do feel a little bit isolated. I'm uh, not in the same sort of uh, contact that I normally would be. Uh, you know, with my travels every single Saturday to Toronto and all my friends there and, and traveling with the Flames around the league, I had kind of become, I guess, accustomed to all the connections. And now when you kind of lose them, you feel, like I said, kind of isolated. Having said that, uh, we have a, a weekly conference call with uh, our Sportsnet people. Everybody's involved. It's really cool. On uh, Thursdays or Fridays of every week, the Flames, Brad Tree Living, has a conference call for all of us media here in around the Calgary area, which is awesome. And once in a while, uh, the Hockey Night crew, uh, we just have a sort of conference call, very similar to this, where we just – chat and catch up with everybody and maybe have a beer while we're uh, talking and stuff. So we're trying to stay connected. And 
I, I hope I'm not getting too optimistic. That is my nature, by the way. I am optimistic, but I'm starting to feel like there might be a little bit of momentum happening, uh, and and I, that's exciting to me. That maybe at some point this summer we're going to see NHL hockey again. God, <laughs> let's hope. Um, I'm wondering if you or maybe your colleagues on the TV side, like, because your schedule is so free now, uh, and there's, you know, there's only so much you can watch on Netflix and other things, you know, in the uh, internet. What are you doing? Like, what are you, have you picked up any new hobbies? Are you just uh, chipping and putting in the backyard? Like, <laughs> what are you guys well, doing? I, my wife and I uh, absolutely love golf, so we're starting a chat about uh, when we might be able to get out there. Uh, and I'm hoping within the next week or two, we can start to maybe play once a week or something. Uh, we like to play a lot, by the way. And uh, although our both of our games are crappy right now, we're hoping to uh, turn that around this summer. Uh, we did a little bit of spring cleaning around the house, my wife more so than I, and, and I still have to – I did about half my office, and the project is kind of stalled down. <laughs> I'm sort of waiting for orders from headquarters, translation Donna, <laughs> that I have to get started again. Uh, I like to go for walks now that the weather's a little bit nicer here in Calgary. Uh, one thing that's – well, two things that are really cool about uh, uh, this weird world we're living in right now. Um, because of I'm, I'm so busy uh, during the, a normal regular season that I don't call my mom as often as I should. Now, through this pandemic, I'm happy to say I call my mom every single day. So that's really great, and we ch- – chat maybe some days it's five minutes sometimes it's 20 minutes but uh uh, i'm gonna have to keep that up when we do go back to work because it's been great for both of us uh and uh also oftentimes what if i'm traveling or even during a regular season i'm here in my office and i'm watching hockey and and uh, then you know maybe have a little dinner and then i'll come back into my office for an hour or two what has been great about this is that every single night uh uh, at around 6.30, Don and I start to prepare dinner, uh, and we have a drink maybe together. She'll have a glass of wine, and I'll have a beer. We'll have our dinner, and then we sit down together the entire night and watch uh, uh, TV, whether it's – I have actually watched a little bit of hockey uh, and or Netflix and things like that, so it's been amazing. It's almost two months now, and every single night we're together watching something, and it's that's good. That's really good for us. I think it's uh... – one of the things to keep in mind, I know like what you just said really resonates with me because it's, it's just frustrating. Like this is not the life that we, you know, chose to live, right? Like, we, yeah. but in the same breath, like you need to make the most of it. And I know yeah. like, I have three small kids and I'm never going to be at home with them for two months again, you know, yeah. three months or however yeah. long it be. So I'm, I'm not going to be able to play basketball or go rollerblading with them at lunch, you know, like, in a year or two from now, right? Like those, yeah. so there are some things that are happening in this world that we're living in that I may never be able to experience again. And people are doing things, uh, you know, that are really heartwarming. Um, by the way, you can tell I love that word. I say it often because <laughs> <laughs> in these times we need to uh, uh, think that way. But so it was a few months ago, my mom was uh, down visiting us and uh, she, she's, by the way, she's a real avid hockey fan. She still watches our broadcasts all the times, whether it's a Saturday night Toronto or when I'm doing a Flames game. And uh, we were having a conversation about one of my uh, co-workers, Cassie Campbell-Pascal. 
And she was saying, oh, I love the job that she does. And it's so uh, rewarding to have her on the broadcast and stuff. And I, I said something like, would you like to meet her, Mom? She goes, oh, my gosh. Yes, it's on my bucket list. And I'm thinking, oh, I think I can make this happy or happen. So I happened to be on the road, and Cassie was going to be on the Saturday broadcast. So she and I went out to dinner on a Friday. Uh, and uh, I said that to her. And she goes, oh, we can make that happen, whether it's in Edmonton where my mom lives or here in Calgary if she comes down. And I thought, that's so terrific. And then uh, the pandemic happens, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, that's not going to happen for a while. So she calls me about or texts me about two weeks ago and says, does your mom have FaceTime? And I go, she certainly does. She goes, well, why don't I FaceTime your mom? So we set up a time, and uh, it was just this past Monday, and she talked to my mom on FaceTime for 40 minutes. Like, <laughs> amazing. And, and my mom was so excited, uh, and she, she, I think she sent me a text about a minute after they, they hung up. She goes, can you call me? <laughs> she just wanted to talk about the conversation she had with Cass. And I thought that was so beautiful. That's great. Well, Kelly, this has been fantastic. I think I, for, for Chris and I, I think we could, we could hold you here forever and, and talk hockey and mental health. And I love it. Uh, uh, it's been really enjoyable. It's been an honor to, to meet you and, uh, and thank you for, for all the work you do in mental health. Um, we need people like you. Like I know what you said is true. Like not everybody has to be an advocate. It's your own personal choice, and if yep. you're comfortable with it, that's uh, that's great. Um, but I know as a as a movement, we need people like you, and uh, we appreciate the work that you do. So thanks for taking the time to Very talk much. to us. Thank today. you. Yeah, honestly, uh, thanks, Chris and Daryl, for inviting me on your podcast. I love it, and I'll finish the same uh, this conversation the same way Paul Bissonnette did. Today, love you guys. Take care. Begins and ends with hope.